Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest today is Marta Homestar, who has written a biography on Christian Magnus Falsen, the prosecution's founding father. And today we're going to talk about the first half, something I find super fascinating in Norwegian and Swedish history, which is the Sweden-Norway Union. And of course, as always, I start with introducing our guests to how, how did you come in studying early 19th century history? Um, thank you for the invitation. It's sometimes uh, history comes kind of by surprise. Uh, I started with uh, studying uh, early modern Norwegian history, uh, and then the natural uh, way further was uh, eighteen fourteen, and and then by uh, especially the first half of the eighteenth nineteenth uh, century, and. Uh, of course, we had a bicentennial jubilee some years ago, which also kind of spurred uh, the possibility to do research and uh, and uh, get to know uh, this period uh, more thorough, and also to talk about it in a, in a wider public context. I would say. Mm. So, of course, the Sweden Union started began as a as a because of the Napoleonic Wars, as you know, and uh, Sweden were fighting against Napoleon, whereas Denmark was fighting with Napoleon. And uh, we're not going to go into the reasons why this time, and, and but, you know, the Norway were in Denmark, then union with Denmark for almost 500, 500 years, I think, for 500 years. And that's what I want, but before that, I want to begin with the Russian takeover of Finland in 1808, because it's kind of essential to understanding why Norway, Sweden got Norway after 1814. Yes, uh, that's uh, it's um, kind of interesting because, as you said, Norway had been a part of Denmark for 400 years, uh, approximately, and uh, on, in the same conditions as uh, Finland had been part of uh, Sweden. So, uh, in the Nordic countries were kind of divided. So it was uh, Denmark, Norway on one side, and then it was Finland, Sweden on the other side. Uh, but uh, as you can see on the map, Finland uh, borders to Russia. And uh, then in 1809, uh, the Russian armed forces uh, invaded Finland and, uh, and annexed uh, that part of the uh, the, the kingdom, uh, Sweden, uh, Finland. And of course, this was a huge loss for uh, for Sweden. Uh, 
in very many ways. And uh, this also resulted in a, in a coup uh, where the political and uh, armed forces, the officers, overthrow uh, the king, Gustav III, uh, and ousted him out of Sweden. Uh, and instead they, uh, they placed uh, a new king, uh, the old and frail and uh, impotent and demented uh, Charles XIII. He had no, no uh, heir, he had no sons. So, uh, so everybody knew that this was kind of an intermediate solution uh, to uh, the governing of, uh, of Sweden. Uh, at the same time, they also adopted a new constitution, which uh, uh, so they uh, parted with the, the absolutist uh, governing of uh, Gustav III in the years uh, before. Um, and then it it happens a lot, <laughs> you can say, because then the new king had no sons, so they had to uh, find a new heir to the throne. Uh, and first, they uh, they uh, contacted uh, uh, Christian August, as it is called. Uh, he was a Danish uh, German uh, prince. Uh, he was in Norway at the time, so uh, he left uh, left his position as uh, governor of Norway. Uh, went to Sweden and became uh, the crown prince of uh, of Sweden. But uh, unfortunately, he died already in. Uh, 1810. So then uh, the Swedes had to start all over again and find a new crown prince to the Swedish uh, throne. Of course, that would be the legendary Charles Baptiste Pandat. Let's talk, let's talk a little bit about him and how he came to end up being Swedish royalty because he's quite a fascinating character, I think. Yes, uh, he yeah, it, he has quite a life story because uh, as one can hear, it is not a Swedish name, it's a French name. And he was one of Napoleon's uh, officers, he was a marshal uh, in his army. And, and quite powerful. Uh, but uh, he fell out with Napoleon uh, and also fell in. <laughs> but uh, in the end, uh, uh, and why the Swedes thought that he maybe could be the solution is one strong part is that they wanted to have uh, an army officer. They wanted someone who could lead Sweden into battle. And uh, that is a reference back to the loss of Finland. Uh, so because the Swedes thought at that moment that uh, they should uh, retake Finland um, as part of natural part of Sweden, uh, and that was also the policy of uh, uh, Charles Jones, uh, as he adopted as his uh, as his reigning name. Um, so uh, he came to uh, to Sweden and uh, forsake uh, his uh, Catholic uh, faith. Uh, became a Protestant um, and uh, and became the crown prince and acting ruler of Sweden. And of course, they tried to uh, 
to maneuver into the Napoleonic Wars at the time. Uh, and uh, then uh, in uh, 1812, uh, they adopted a new policy for uh, what they wanted to achieve during this war. Mm. And uh, he gave up uh, the dream of uh, retaking uh, Finland. Uh, and instead he uh, uh, he said, uh, let's uh, take Norway. Mm. Because one thing was that Finland uh, was seen as part, a natural part of Sweden, but Norway certainly is. Because when you look at uh, the map, uh, the border between uh, uh, Finland and all Sweden and Norway is uh, very long, and uh, and mm. the parts of the, these countries fit very well together. Mm. So uh, so Charleston had to uh, persuade his uh, allies. Uh, and uh, but he uh, came through with it, and uh, and uh, that was a good deal for his or Sweden's participation in the uh, final fights against Napoleon. Um, and then in uh, uh, eighteen thirteen, when uh, the downfall of Napoleon was more or less uh, very clear. And you have the Battle of Leipzig in October, uh, where Napoleon lost. And in, but instead of following the French armies uh, to kind of give the final blow, as the other uh, nations did, uh, John turned uh, and went uh, north and attacked uh, Denmark uh, and uh, the German uh, parts of Denmark. Uh, to uh, uh, push forward and, and uh, by that uh, get Norway. So, of course, this brings us to the end of the Napoleonic Wars. And let's talk about the Kiel Treaty, because it, it does become essential for the Sweden-Norway Union and the, the, the Nordic politics for the next half century, essentially. Yes, uh, that's very true. The the Treaty of Kiel is uh, is a peace treaty uh, or cease ceasefire uh, after the attacks because the Danish army couldn't uh, withstand the Swedish army uh, and the important part for uh, for Norway is that in uh, in this uh, treaty uh, the Danish king gives up his uh, rights to the Norwegian throne. But I, th I think we should also mention that Norway was independent for three whole seconds before we were, <laughs> before we were handed over to yeah, Sweden. I, I would maybe say it, it took a, a little bit of eight months at least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more or less. But uh, <laughs> for 14 is a very eventful year for Norway. You have uh, a Two general elections. You have two constitutional assemblies. You have uh, uh, a war. You have uh, three kings. <laughs> so uh, uh, it, it's a lot. A lot that happens. And if if uh, yeah, and I, mean, I should maybe talk a little bit about it because yeah. uh, um, 
of course, we have the key treaty uh, at the start of the year uh, that sees uh, uh, Norway to to Sweden. But of course, this is on paper. Uh, so uh, messages is sent uh, north to Norway uh, to tell the governor of uh, Norway at the time, uh, Christian Fredrik, who is the uh, prince of Denmark as well. Uh, but he is to give over the uh, fortresses and uh, and leave and come back to Denmark. Uh, and of course, it's there is a lot of secrecy, so you can't really tell what happens. And, and one of the questions is, of course, uh, what the Danish king actually tells um, his uh, governor. Uh, and what he should do. But uh, the general feeling is that he acts quite independently uh, because he says that uh, he will not accept the treaty uh, and uh, he wants to uh, proclaim himself as uh, a Norwegian king uh, because of his birthright as Danish prince. Um, and he went uh, on a travel through Norway to get uh, gain support. Uh, he did get the support to have an independent Norway. Uh, but he also got quite a clear message from uh, the elite that he met uh, that Norway wanted a constitution. Uh, and also at uh, a very important meeting, he uh, uh, one of, one of uh, the participants um, tells him that isn't it much sweeter to have uh, give, been given the crown from the people than taking it by right. Uh, so he, I always see this as quite an emotional moment where they kind of mm. uh, have this uh, image of, of uh, how the people is going to to give him the crown. Uh, so he decides uh, that uh, he should uh, call for a constitutional assembly uh, and not proclaim himself as king on this, uh, this point and uh, give the people the right to uh, elect the king. Um, of course, it was 1814. It wasn't that easy to uh, get the message through, and uh, they had no system to to have election as we know it today. But uh, uh, this call for a, a, a constitutional assembly uh, led to the election of uh, uh, of uh, men. <clears throat> Um, and uh, in the start of April, uh, 112 representatives uh, from almost all uh, lines of, uh, of Norwegian society. Uh, it was civil servants, it was uh, uh, representatives from the armed forces, it was uh, farmers, which is uh, quite important and, and show this egalitarian thought. Um, and 
some were quite young because they couldn't find uh, a better <laughs> better solution but uh, but also uh, uh, but it was quite the young young uh, assembly that uh, so the I think the age was around 30 40 years old, uh, old of this man um, and just within weeks they uh, made this constitution uh, and what this maybe the most important is that it's based on popular sovereignty uh, and uh, someone would uh, describe it as the last revolutionary constitution of uh, uh, of this era uh, that the constitution that came after is not based on popular sovereignty on the same same uh, sort of that it also have quite a wide franchise uh, so at the time, it was quite a large uh, portion of the men of Norway who could uh, get to vote and and uh, have a political voice. <clears throat> um, so that's one of the important things. But of course, uh, the Allies wasn't that pleased, and uh, uh, Sweden Sweden was, uh, uh, of course. Uh, very offended uh, with this uh, move and uh, then in the summer first they tried to persuade uh, that they have to go into a union with Sweden and they said no and uh, uh, also tried to work politically they had uh, uh, emissaries who went to, to uh, Great Britain and, uh, and they also had support in the British Parliament for Norwegian independence, uh, but in the end, the Swedes uh, uh, invaded Norway. Hmm. So and this, yeah. and this will be the last war we fought with Sweden against Norway, which would be, of course, a disaster for Norwegian forces. Yes, uh, it was very clear that the Norwegian armed forces went uh, up to this uh, land war uh, and invasion. And uh, also, it, it was what happened is is that also uh, many thought uh, it would uh, end in a betrayal from uh, Christian Fredrik because quite shortly he uh, he did not uh, want to spill Norwegian blood, so so he uh, aimed for a ceasefire with uh, with Sweden and. Then in uh, August already, uh, very short war, um, the, uh, they signed a, a ceasefire, uh, which uh, uh, granted Norway its constitution, um, but also forced uh, uh, Christian Fredrik as king to abdicate and leave Norway. Um, it didn't happen immediately. Uh, because uh, he said that I have to call for a, a new uh, constitutional assembly, and they have to, uh, I I have to abdicate to them, not to to Sweden. Hmm. So by this move, they uh, gain uh, power, uh, and uh, which also uh, secure the constitution, which is the most important part of this. And uh, then uh, one had a new election 
new constitutional assembly. Uh, and uh, in the negotiation with the Swedes uh, throughout uh, the assembly, it uh, uh, ended with very few changes in the constitution. Uh, but it actually increased the parliament's uh, power and authority uh, and, and by that strengthening uh, Norway's inner independence, at least. But of course, uh, foreign policy uh, would be decided by uh, the Swedish government and the Swedish king. Uh, so that part is kind of lost uh, some uh, some sovereignty. Now, I, I do think that Charlie Johan Han as well, which was the name Sean Baptiste took after becoming Swedish king, he was reluctant to use the armed forces because it was thought that, you know, if I invade, they're going to hate me for sure, and they're going to hate this unit. So if, but if he settled this diplomatically, they might be not be so, you know, they might not hate me that much. Of course, I was never loved in Norway, but, you know, to that extent he hoped for with the union, but he, he was kind of reluctant using force in invading Norway, as far as I understood this. Uh, yes, uh, of course, if you do in way he he wanted to have a, a more or less harmonious uh, union at the same part uh, uh, an important uh, uh, paragraph in uh, the kill treaty was that norway was ceded to the swedish king and not to the uh, swedish realm mm. uh, so uh, he figured that uh, that uh, if the worst was to happen with his position, uh, he could uh, retain Norway, uh, e even though he maybe lost Sweden. But of course, that's very you you know don't know what happened, uh, what would happen, and and it was a lot of uncertainty. But uh, this situation never never occurred. So, uh, but uh, what you see is that uh, Charles John was very reluctant to use force in the first years of uh, of his reign of, uh, or as a crown prince uh, but acting regent of uh, Norway and, and kind of wanted to treat Norway uh, in a way that uh, wouldn't uh, uh, initiate um, too much political disturbance and and uh, uh, instead kind of create an harmonious and get get the Norwegian support. And of course, some people thought that the best solution, solution for Norway were to uh, get into the union with uh, uh, with Sweden. And that was quite uh, influential uh, men. There were, uh, and uh, it was led by maybe the one person we could call real nobility in Norway at the time. Uh, and some of the richest merchants uh, in this period uh, who supported a union uh, with Sweden. So, uh, but the other parts of Norway was quite hesitant and, uh, and wanted to fight back uh, at least uh, until, uh, uh, until the end of 1814. Um, but uh, Tarzan was... Uh, 
uh, he was uh, he was working uh, diplomatically with uh, with the Norwegian. He tried to uh, uh, kind of bribe uh, important people uh, from the opposition. Uh, gave out uh, orders and and uh, trying to dignify people. Uh, and Norway was in many ways ruled by the civil servants. Uh, and uh, uh, maybe it was kind of some mentality uh, that they were used to have a king and accept the king. And it was the Danish king, and then they pledged allegiance to the Swedish king, and then they would kind of accept uh, that situation. Um, but of course, they also had other outlets to to show resistance uh, politically in the new uh, environment of um, semi-independent Norway. So let's talk about installing the Norwegian government and how much power they had compared to, you know, the Sweden of, and how they were going to work this together. Because I do think that they're going to have an assembly with Sweden either every five year or every third year. So let's talk about how much the Norwegian government under Sweden-Norway. Yeah, um, of, of course, you had the parliament as and uh, who had the uh, legal and fiscal and uh, and also controlling power uh, of uh, uh, of the Norwegian politics? They were gathered every third year, uh, which of course was could be a problem. But then you have the government who was acting in the king's name, and they were uh, named by him. Uh, and uh, the first governments were uh, all strong supporters of the union, but they also included some uh, of those who had been uh, on the opposition in 1814. Uh, and the, it was a kind of power struggle, but at the same time, the king was mainly in Sweden. So he was in Stockholm on the other side of Sweden. It's, it's, it's a distance. It takes some time to... Uh, to travel, uh, at least in uh, 1814 uh, and uh, around that time. So, and it ended with uh, that you had the government in Norway and then you had the prime minister in Sweden. So you had kind of two, uh, two prime ministers uh, at the time, one who was leading the government in Norway and then you had one in Sweden who was working closely with the, with the Swedish government and, uh, and the king. And had to kind of act uh, as a diplomatic force uh, between the different interests of uh, the Swedish government, who was in many ways very opposed to the Norwegian uh, independence and uh, what they thought as arrogance. And of course, Norwegian government uh, thought very much the same about the Swedish government. So uh, that was a power struggle clearly from the beginning but it was hard to uh, to uh, um, end up in various kind of open conflicts because mm. uh, the Norwegian government answered to the king not to the Swedish government mm. 
and I believe, and of course, this is uh, become essential later as we go into the late mid later nineteenth century, which I hope you talk about soon as well. But you know, Ola Richter would not become it as you know, but it was not a popular who would be prime minister in Sweden for Norway. But it was, it was not a very popular. That like we talked about it was not a very popular post in Norwegian being as prime minister in Sweden. Norwegian prime minister in Sweden. So, uh, and uh, the first years they had the same. It was, it was one of the leading uh, union men, you can say, from eighteen fourteen, who was uh, was prime minister in in Sweden, in Stockholm. Uh, but later, it it was kind of it uh, went uh, as a turn between the the uh, members of the government. So they had kind of. A period each uh, where they went to to Stockholm and stayed there as uh, acting uh, prime ministers uh, before they went back to Norway again to work with their departments and uh, be part of Norwegian government in Oslo. So so it wasn't very popular and and they because they were so close to the king and and uh, I think Charlton was. Quite demanding. Uh, uh, they very much felt this conflict between uh, uh, Norway and Sweden. Um, they were maybe one of those who, who felt that most immediate uh, on the on the, in, the conflicting interest between Norway and Sweden. Mm. Well, well, how important was this job and not to have this foreign post? If you will, in Sweden. Oh, uh, was it really necessary as well to have this kind of for kind of, if you will, I, I call it a, for lack of better words, a foreign minister so close to Swedish parliament? Yes, it, it was important because uh, he uh, was going to uh, represent the view of the of the Norwegian government and and try to. Uh, mediate the king to accept what they thought were best uh, and in the best interest of uh, of Norway. Um, so, and Chaldron is known to have quite a temper uh, and quite a, a strong strong will and determination, and could not easily be swayed. Uh, by other people, um, and so so that was it was a difficult situation uh, to try to navigate uh, towards him and uh, getting uh, the best solutions for Norway. Mm. But uh, and at the same time, one had a quite a strong and at least vocal uh, opposition in Norway, uh, which is very much seen during the the session of the parliament so uh, um, and it happens something with the dynamic between uh, between Norway and or between the king and the Norwegian politicians uh, after uh, then uh, at the point where Charleston is the actual king so that's when uh, Charles XIII dies, and uh, and he is uh, uh, really gets his hand on the crown. He also gets 
more self-confidence and uh, uh, puts uh, more power behind uh, behind his meanings uh, and uh, and what he wants to to have. And I think it's also important to establish that though at this time Norway and or Scandinavia in general they were driving towards a constitutional monarchy though. It wasn't constitutional as we know it today. Of course, the king did have some power, and among those is that Carl Johan he would try to neglect certain parts of the constitution as well. Yes, um, uh, and of course, the opposition in the parliament were very aware of their rights in the constitution, mm-hmm. uh, and at the same time. Uh, the king wanted to undermine those rights. Uh, and in the 1820s, it ends up in this constitutional strife uh, where he, because the constitution didn't give the king absolute veto, so he wanted to implement that absolute veto. Um, and uh, he also wanted to have a, a stronger hand in uh, in uh, who was uh, going to be civil servants in Norway. Uh, he uh, so that he could uh, be able to dismiss um, judges, for example. Mm. Um. So so he tried to attack kind of some of this fabric in the constitution, but this met was met with. Quite a strong opposition in in uh, in the uh, parliament, and often it it's not correct, but often it says that nothing is changed in the constitution in this time. It's it's not correct, but these important uh, things that the king wanted to change, uh, they would not change because they had to do that uh, with the. Two thirds majority in the in the parliament, and they wouldn't give him that. So we call it uh, constitutional conservatism. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this uh, this attitude against it. So uh, mm-hmm. as few changes as possible, uh, and especially not changes that would uh, alter the power. Uh, between the king and uh, the parliament, um, and the king tried to to influence the the parliament in different ways, also military. So in eighteen twenty one, one had a especially rebellious uh, parliament, and and uh, uh, it was a quite a fair. Uh, amongst the uh, number of people that Charles uh, John would uh, uh, actually uh, make a coup and, uh, and overthrow the constitution and uh, name himself as an absolutist king. And mm. um, something I want to talk about as well, and this is because this is important as as well because the flag, of course, the flag controversy. Because Norway was very much, I, I would dare say, a sea empire in its own right, because we, our fleet in international trade is massive and it deserves a future episode in its own right. But, you know, there, there was a problem with, fly, with for the lack of better words, flying international waters because it needed the flag of the nation 
that you had, and Norway did get our own flag, the red, white, and blue, in uh, 1814, but of course, being in union with Sweden, we cannot use this flag as a our own flag, so we needed the union flag. So let's talk about the union flag, and in in order to to yeah. go in the international waters and international harbors, we needed the union flag on our boats, and the, in general, the union flag. Yeah, let's talk about uh, it. This one one of the the most important part of the of the flag is to uh, be recognized as okay that you, you get uh, you can see who who is approaching you uh, in the oceans so uh, that's why it was important to have an uh, an own flag uh, and Norway uh, got the red white and blue flag in uh, uh, 1821 um and of course that's quite a story just just that but uh, in the foreign waters uh, they had to to use uh, this union flag that was based on the swedish flag and uh, as one on one side had this uh, national flag that uh, one can use in the near waters as as one said um north sea and and the trade uh, to Great Britain and and France, uh, at, when they went further, and of course Norway was an international uh, sea nation at this part, this time, and even more so uh, when, as uh, times went by, uh, they also felt that they should have equality uh, with the Swedes in in this part, so. From the uh, 1830s, they came. Uh, uh, they tried to uh, get the Swedish king to adopt a kind of union emblem that they could use in, respectively, the Swedish and Norwegian flag. Mm. And uh, it is kind of uh, you can say a mismatch of uh, of uh, of the two flags uh, that was to place be placed in one corner of the of the respective flags and this was charles john wasn't very keen to uh, to adopt this and wouldn't accept it and they put down uh, con- commissions who uh, negotiated between sweden and norway and, and it was quite a case uh, in this era and then when uh, uh, as times went by, kings gets old and uh, they die. And uh, Charles died in uh, 1844. And the new king, his son, Oscar I, uh, he is often described as a gift. He gifted Norway mm. with this new Union uh, flag uh, that um, it, in the Scandinavian tongue is referred to as the Silsalat. So it's the uh, south of uh, of herrings, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> which um, maybe yeah, uh, is it tasteful or not? That uh, that is to be discussed. Uh, but this uh, opened up for uh, more uh, equality between the nations uh, in a foreign capacity, which is important at the time, um, and. 
and it was widely used. It was used on all state buildings, and you can find it uh, in kind of decora uh, decorations uh, and uh, things like that. And I've seen pictures from uh, later in the 19th century where you find these small table flags that you put mm. out as a decoration, a Swedish flag with Norwegian uh, or with with the mm. herring salad, <laughs> <laughs> and Norwegian flags with the with the same uh, emblem. So mm. so it was used on both sides of the border and uh, and uh, seen as as a kind of token of of equality at the time. Mm. And something speaking of, of equality, and and there is something, and this would be true for very much late, uh, even up until twentieth mid twentieth century. I think that the Swedes they did, and of course this is not surprising, perhaps that they did not kind of look at the Norwegians as a little bit inferior to themselves. Yes, uh, <laughs> uh, it's it's <laughs> both uh, economic and cultural and political. Uh, I think uh, it's of course very easy to see to look at the economic and, and uh, cultural uh, parts of it because uh, the the Swe Swedish uh, foreign diplomacy was uh, was uh, uh, more extended, of course, because the foreign policy was led by Sweden, uh, but they also. Culturally, they felt that they had a greater history as a, a Swedish empire. They had had a large part of of uh, Europe who had been controlled by Sweden at uh, sometimes. So, so they felt that their heritage was was uh, greater. They were a better warfaring nation. They they had. Uh, Imperial aspirations, um, which they didn't uh, recognize that uh, Norway had because they were led by Denmark at the same time. So, and also Swedish uh, aristocratic culture was heavily influenced by French uh, culture. They talked French in in the high circles of uh, of uh, Swedish. Uh, Aristocracy, and it's not only because the the, the king was of uh, French uh, heritage, but uh, but also because of the uh, diplomatic and uh, cultural uh, influences uh, throughout the 18th century, for example. So so they thought they were better both as as a culture and uh, and uh, uh, as a nation uh, in an international context. And of course, they looked at uh, these Norwegian uh, peasants uh, as they could be described with uh, who were brute and and didn't have the refinement of the of the Swedes <laughs> at the same time. There is a modern Norwegian historian, I think, and I was told of this by a, a historian friend of mine who I also had on this podcast. And he said that he's there is this Norwegian historian I don't remember his name right now, but he that kind of ridicules. That Norway was poor in the nineteenth century. What what do you think about his theory there? Oh, it, it's 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 kind of, but this is also a kind of national myth in Norway that we were very poor, uh, and it's not it's not right in that sense because 
as we mentioned, we had a quite large uh, uh, seafaring. Uh, mm. uh, so we did a lot of international trade uh, and had done from the 18th century, especially with timber. Um, and uh, that kind of continued. And uh, when one stopped with the timber and one uh, continued with the fish, for example, uh, exporting uh, fish throughout uh, Europe and uh, as far as uh, uh, South uh, America. So, so, so the nation wasn't poor uh, as kind of this image gives. Um, and of course, the, the position of Norway also strengthened throughout the 19th century. So uh, uh, it, even though a lot of people were poor, as, a, as they were all over uh, Europe, it wasn't especially more poor in Norway than other places, mm. uh, you can say. Mm. Something I want to talk about as well is uh, probably how they tried to... It's the military presence in the Swedish military presence in Norway, and the, he was discussing... According to historian Bud Strott, he was discussing a joint military with Sweden and Norway, and there was talk about military presence on military ports in Norway, but the Norwegian parliament were, of course, very opposed to this, and as you know, not much came of this. So let's talk about Norwegian and Swedish military forces under union. Uh, yeah, that, uh, it, of course to kind of strengthen the ties between the two nations and uh, uh, unified armed force would do very much uh, in that uh, respect. Uh, but uh, already in 1814, the constitution secured that uh, the Swedish king or Norwegian king, he couldn't take the armed forces, Norwegian armed forces out of Norway. So he couldn't take Norwegian soldiers and, and go on some uh, military expeditions uh, somewhere uh, in uh, Europe. Mm. Uh, so that was one boundary for, for this. Uh, and um, when uh, there was uh, times when Swedes and the Swedish uh, armed forces came into Norway, but then that was described as a peaceful uh, meeting between two nations. Mm. And of course, I mentioned uh, 1821, uh, when they had this uh, this camping of the Swedish uh, armed forces outside of uh, Oslo. And, uh, and, uh, uh, but it was very much also a social event where uh, Norwegian uh, citizens uh, came up and, and kind of looked at this uh, Swedish uh, soldiers and officers and there were balls and uh, interaction of, of a very uh, gentile nature. Uh, but um, it was a kind of underlying threat that, uh, that uh, he could use uh, the Swedish armed forces in Norway. Uh, and of course, I think the Swedish government were very much in favor of getting control over the Norwegian armed forces as well. Uh, and uh, Norway's, because of the uh, the history with Denmark, uh, the naval forces were uh, 
quite uh, uh, present in in uh, Norway. They had uh, they were used to having uh, a naval uh, fleet, uh, or and it wasn't, of course, the same as uh, when they went to Denmark. But the Norwegian uh, uh, boys uh, went to Denmark. Uh, during or before the Napoleonic Wars uh, and uh, served in the Danish fleet. So they were quite, uh, they had some competence, you can say, in in that regard. Mm. And so, something I want to talk about as well is, of course, the, just just a second here, let me just find, uh, <clears throat> you know, nationalism is, of course, probably widely spread in but if and before that actually I'm sorry for interrupting you there I want to talk about the death of Karl Johan and the takeover of Ostar the first to become quite an important king for the Union. Yes, um, <clears throat> Oscar the first he, he was born French so so he came with he was um, quite grown when he came to to Sweden, uh, but. Uh, he his upbringing uh, was in Sweden and and in Norway, and he learned more about Norwegian culture than uh, than his father. He could uh, communicate in uh, in uh, Swedish and Norwegian, so he wasn't uh, he wasn't that strange or or foreign uh, to the Norwegian public, and it was it was quite popular as uh, as charming and and. Uh, uh, good-hearted, mm. and so so when his kind of uh, military father <laughs> finally died, uh, who had had all had uh, had all these conflicts with with uh, uh, the government and and the parliament and and kind of been very protective of his rights and and interested in securing his position. Uh, his son didn't have to didn't have to have that uh, view and and uh, hardship. Uh, it was more natural that uh, this was part of his uh, his uh, reign. He was uh, he was more secure maybe in his role as as Norwegian Swedish king. Mm. Um, so so that also led to. Uh, a more uh, gentle period for the union, uh, not with that many conflicts. So what's happening? Uh, it's more uh, interior than uh, maybe conflicts between Norway and, and Sweden uh, throughout the union, because they more or less cooperated better uh, during uh, Oscar the First and and his uh, sons, or at least. Until uh, uh, until a time. <laughs> so, something I want to talk about as well, and of course, this is the result of Norway's National Day, it's, which is 17th May, and it's it was allowed to be celebrated, though, of course, Carl Johan, who we talked about, was reluctant to celebrate, let them celebrate, celebrate it. And Norwegian, sorry, Swedish kings did travel to Norway, but no one really did travel there and celebrate the 17th May, the Constitution, on the day of our, on our national day. Day. So 
I did boost Rotti argues that maybe if the Swedish king would have been there on the national days, this could have helped strengthen the union better, better morally. And of course, what do you think about this? And of course, let's talk about a little bit about our 17th of May. And I always say that if you are in Norway in May, 17th May is, of course, a day to be here. It's a wild celebration. Yes. Um, uh, the celebration of the Constitution Day, It's uh, it was important and is, of course, very important today. But uh, uh, today is not really a political day, but uh, back then it was. <clears throat> and Charleston actually wanted... if. If they were going to to <coughs> celebrate the constitution, it should be the uh, the final constitution who was passed on the fourth of November. Uh, everyone that knows Norwegian climate um, uh, would know that that's not the day to be outside and having a parade. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. <coughs> But um, uh, one wanted to celebrate the 17th of May as the first constitution. Um, and they, um, Chargeon was very opposed to this uh, this uh, tradition and tried to suppress it. And then uh, uh, one had uh, an incident in 1827 where it was uh, end of it kind of uh, a public uh, celebration out in the streets of uh, Oslo. Uh, who was met with a uh, police force who uh, went into this uh, this crowd and, and beat some of the participants and by that so it was quite a scandal at the time uh, and it's it's very defining for and of course it was even more strengthening for the feeling that the 17th of May is the day to celebrate because that's Norwegian's day, and, and so it it is an interesting thought that uh, Bustrot is is uh, uh, talking about when when he says that maybe if the Swedish kings had been in Norway as Norwegian kings and taken part of the celebration, they would also have a more goodwill, you can say, uh, in uh, in the final. Uh, how uh, the union developed uh, throughout the 19th century. I do believe Oscar the first, which was he was kind of popular in Norway too. I think because he either him or he, one of his successors. I don't remember quite clearly, but he said, "I'm not the king of Sweden, Norway. I'm king of Norway." Put in Norway first instead of Sweden, which was widely popular claim that he is not just you know putting Sweden ahead of Norway. Yeah, uh, and and that's and that was very important. That in Norway, he's he should be named first as Norway's king and then as Swedish king. But of course, even as I speak now, I talk about him as the Swedish king. So it's very, <laughs> it's it's kind of <laughs> hard to get out of that uh, that uh, uh, discourse, you can say. Uh, but that was kind of this small elements that that would show equality and that he was indeed a Norwegian king and that's why it also was important to have uh, a palace in Norway. Um, 
and that he on different uh, uh, public statements all, always was named as Norwegian king before the Swedish king. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's presentation and and how you uh, present yourself as a ruler of Norway uh, is important to how you also are looked upon as. Uh, so uh, of course, when the king started to talk Norwegian, when the king uh, get to know uh, Norwegian history, when he was more. Interest, interested in uh, what Norway was was like, uh, it also uh, uh, gave him more goodwill in the in the population. And uh, <clears throat> we can talk about nationalism in in Norway. Uh, it's a little bit difficult because uh, nationalism is uh, quite a, a contested word today. Uh, we can talk about kind of good nationalism and bad nationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, Norwegian nationalism was very much about nation building in the 19th century. Uh, and of course it was to uh, to distance itself from it, Danish-Norwegian uh, past uh, and uh, kind of uh, emphasize its own singularity and its own history. So very much of Norwegian history at the time uh, is written about medieval history and mm -hmm. the Viking age and, and uh, kind of what we know as, uh, or at least uh, it's more widely known uh, as Norwegian history. I, I do believe at this time as well, Snorri becomes, who is largely forgotten, he becomes widely popular and rediscovered as well during this era, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's it's kind of, of course, it's the romanticization of uh, of uh, medieval times as you find all through uh, Europe at the, at this period. You have uh, uh, what happens in in Germanic uh, culture, and uh, one kind of look to the north uh, as this. Uh, bold and, uh, and brave, uh, uh, brave men, and um, so uh, one kind of uh, it's it's different forces that kind of drives this. But from Norwegians' part, it was very much about creating a, an own identity as as an own nation and and uh, separate itself from this uh, uh, more. Uh, yeah, uh, well, of Danish uh, uh, people who lived on uh, cream and and uh, pork. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, it was it was, uh, and also from the the Swedish. So I was talking about this natural and and uh, kind of straightforward Norwegian men uh, against this uh, Swedish uh, French. Uh, Diplomats uh, influenced by something very un-Nordic, uh, one can say. Uh, but uh, um, and and when you read uh, history books, and it it kind of ends with the uh, with the uh, they don't talk very much about the Danish Danish period. They kind of and 
when they talk about Norway, they start in 1814. Uh, that's when a kind of nations started and the state uh, is uh, is established. Hmm. And of course, then you got the infamous revolutionary year of 1848, which both occurs in not just Germany, Habsburg, the Habsburg Empire, and in France, of course, is because of course France have a rev- revolution then as well, and uh, it also something occurs in Norway and. That, he is such a fascinating character that he's unavoidable to talk about in this era. And that's, of course, I know I've been excited to talk about him. That is the Marcus Train movement. So let's talk about his background a little bit and how he came to establish, though it would fail essentially, his revol- kind of revolutionary movement at the time. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Trauma, uh, Train, uh, he, was, he was born from a civil servant family. But his father uh, was uh, imprisoned. He, he made uh, uh, economic uh, uh, crimes uh, against the national bank. So, so he uh, he was, if not ousted, he he lost his fortune. Uh, so, uh, but he was quite well educated. He was uh, working as a journalist and as a teacher, uh, and he was very much influenced with the revolutionary events in Europe at the end of the, the 1840s. Uh, and he so and influenced by socialism. Uh, so he started to organize um, workers, uh, both those who worked the land uh, and also the very, very early industrial workers at the time. If, um, if I may interrupt you for a second, it's also worth mentioning that he did, that you mentioned that he got inspired by the revolutions in Europe, but he also did travel and took part of, of a lot in, I think he was in prison in France, Paris at one point as well, and he spoke, he learned French there, and he, he was, when he was in France, that's what inspired his growing movement when he came back to Norway, essentially. Yes, and uh, but uh, yes, uh, so he was very much influenced with what happened uh, in, in the rest of Europe, and then it kind of it was the momentum of of this kind of social uh, uprising, uh, and that's very it's very uh, difficult and and uh, quite uh, um, problematic to to do in a, a country that is so. Uh, controlled as Norwegian society actually was uh, and and but he organized uh, there were I think about 50,000 people uh, so it's, it was a lot of people that uh, supported him and and uh, uh, in 1849 they uh, they uh, had this uh, this petition which they uh, presented for the king. Uh, where they uh, established ten kind of wishes for for the development of uh, of Norway, and it was uh, protecting uh, the crafters and giving them legal a better legal uh, protection from from uh, the farm owners. Uh, it was uh, giving uh, uh, or organizing the schools in a better way so they would. Secure 
better education for everyone, because that's very important when you are to build uh, political citizens. Um, uh, they have to be able to read and, and uh, write and understand uh, literature, uh, not only uh, religious ones. And, uh, and they also uh, wanted uh, universal suffrage for men, which is uh, in Norway, uh, that was quite revolutionary. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Norwegian Constitution of 1814 uh, granted quite a lot, large part of the, of the, the men uh, suffrage. Uh, this proportion had uh, uh, been reduced uh, during the time as the social uh, fabric uh, kind of changed. Uh, so um, it was a lesser and lesser uh, proportion of the men who could actually be a political citizen. Uh, so, and that was maybe one of the most important uh, demands that they had. All of this was uh, just uh, pushed away and they said that people shouldn't be inspired by those revolutionary thoughts of of uh, Europe and and that they should accept the the status quo and uh, uh, the good society that they had and and very paternalistic view on how the uh, how the society was to be uh, be organized. Uh, but they didn't lose uh, their spirit. Uh, and the year after 1850, there were uh, a parliamentary session. So they uh, they uh, uh, kind of uh, they raised the petition uh, towards the parliament the year after, and what's interesting is that this is maybe one of the breakthroughs for more liberal political views uh, in uh, Norway. Uh, so at the same time, uh, inspired by new Danish constitution from the year uh, before. Uh, there were also uh, suggestions of uh, giving uh, universal suffrage for men at the local level, uh, not at the state level, but at the local level. Uh, and that would be, of course, a quite large step towards uh, universal suffrage also at the national level. Uh, but nothing of this was, uh, was uh, passed. Uh, and, uh, of course, it was... Uh, kind of heartbreaking or at least uh, negative outcome for Marcus Trauma, um, who had been the leader of this movement. Uh, and there were some events uh, in the capital. Uh Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, during the summer and uh, it came became a rumor that they had... Uh, uh, stated that they would, uh, would uh, make an actual revolution, armed revolution, uh, to get their will. And so he and uh, a lot of 
the other leaders of the movement, they were arrested. Uh, and the, the larger movement kind of fell apart after that. So so it was uh, uh, it, it was a very negative outcome for them uh, personally and he was also uh, they were prosecuted and it took they were in prison for a number of years um, so so the personal cost for Marcusran um, was quite quite large and heavy um, and there is, of course, uh, a discussion if what happened to him is really beyond the law that he uh, was uh, the victim of uh, of uh, the justice at the at the time, <clears throat> and their uh, ill will actually. Um, but at at the same time, in a wider context, I uh, it raised a discussion of how uh, not only uh, this one third of the society or the male society, uh, one had to uh, say, uh, was to have this political rights, but uh, then this other large part would have no rights to vote. Mm. Because also people who were well off uh, could not uh, it wasn't automatic that they could have uh, have the right to vote, for example, and educated uh, people, lawyers, they if they didn't kind of qualify through this quite narrow uh, uh, paragraphs in in the constitution, they didn't get the right to vote. So so it started a discussion of who was to be a political citizen in Norway. Which kind of uh, went, uh, it took half a century, uh, but but uh, it had to start somewhere, and that's where it started. And of course, Martin Strana, <clears throat> Martin Strana, he did eventually get released, and he ended up. I think he ended his days in the New World in America, but that's of course a story for later. But but I think we're gonna round it up there because you your main, as you know, you mainly stated you mainly studied the early parts of the 19th century, so I think we're going to save the later part of the 19th century for a later episode. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Do you have, before you go, do you have anything you want to promote on the social media where people might find you or contact you if they have any questions? Uh, no, I, I think I just uh, have to urge people to, to get to know uh, this period of Norwegian history because... Uh, uh, we are kind of a little bit on the outskirts of, of uh, Europe and what happens there, but we're also kind of the history of the democratic evolution of, of Norway is quite interesting and should be also inspiration for what happens today, I think. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. My name is Adam. We are, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Wherever you can find podcasts these days, if you're on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a little bit of a review if you like this episode. And also do check out some of our other episodes. Uh, you're definitely going to find something you like. Last year, we made an episode on the Constitution, which I highly recommend checking out, which was really a great, fantastic episode. Please like, share, and subscribe. 
and I'll see you next time.